This is Reimagine Law, a podcast about legal education and careers to help students navigate their career choices. Hello and welcome to Reimagine Law. This is one of our first episodes um, in 2022. And I just want to do a reminder to follow us on our LinkedIn page and Instagram page. And of course, do always feel free to visit the Reimagine Law website to see past episodes. So today we're talking about legal aid, this big uh, and very topical uh, issue at the moment. So we're in 2022. Um, And that's 10 years on from a really pivotal piece of legislation, the Legal Aid, Sentencing and Punishment of Offenders Act 2012. Now, this had some significant impacts um, on legal aid. It really reduced um, legal aid, especially in the area of civil law. Um, It either removed or significantly reduced legal aid in a number of areas, including social welfare and benefits, debt, employment, family law disputes that are are private law rather than public family law disputes, um, and non-asylum immigration cases. Um, It also introduced something quite interesting around exceptional case funding. So if legal aid has been cut in an area um, that would otherwise have it, but there's a a potential human rights issue, um, there would be scope to bring in legal aid. But of course, that was limited in how it could be applied. Now, um, we're going to hear from our guests in a moment who work in in the field of criminal law, but criminal legal aid in particular has been cut year on year for decades. Um, It has a really tight eligibility criteria as well for individuals who've been accused of criminal offences who are seeking to get legal aid um, that we'll come on to in due course. Now, the reason I start this this episode by saying it's topical is that in November 2021, um, we had an independent review on legal aid, um, which was released. And we'll put the link to that in the show notes at the end in case you want to to have a look through. Um, But without further ado, let me welcome our two guests um, for today. Um, firstly, a very warm welcome to Haroon Matin, a Director at National Legal Service and Head of the Crime and Extradition Department. Welcome to Reimagined Law. And also a warm welcome to Vivian Cochran, who is a Criminal Law Solicitor and Partner at Sherman Bowen Solicitors. Welcome, Vivian. So let me kick off with my first question for you, if I can. What is legal aid? Uh, What's its history? And perhaps you could help us a little bit with why it was originally set up. Legal aid is effectively your legal representation or your legal advice being funded by the public. So the government paying um, for those legal services rather than you having to reach into your pocket. Um, And it's effectively related to identifying the fact that everybody should have an um, access to justice. Um, and initially, it was introduced after the sort of wide reforms um, after the Second World War, and it came in as one of the pillars, so education and obviously health with the, with the structure of the NHS. Um, and then the government of the time felt as though that legal aid and public funding or government funding for people um, getting access to justice or getting effectively getting solicitors to help them in, in whatever issue they have. Um, and it, it is it is interesting to look at the history. What I don't think that was foreseen was the fact that access to justice became um, such an intrinsic right. Um, you know, we do the comparison to access to your healthcare, um, and I think if you look at the sort of societal changes or or, or people wanting um, help with legal advice um, has changed over time. So therefore. You, you then see legal aid itself 
um, changing and evolving. So you know, just as an as an aside, I think if you actually look at the history, one of the first issues that the, that it was introduced for legal aid was effectively uh, to maybe intervene in, in divorce cases, and that seemed like a, an issue of the time in the late forties or early fifties. However, you know, with, with maybe immigration um, and also um, a greater social welfare system, those issues have changed. For instance, maybe in the 70s and the 80s, you can identify that immigration became quite an issue and therefore legal aid for that was, was very uh, necessary. So the, the thing to think about is that it was introduced as almost as a sort of basic human right, I would say. Um, and at the beginning, um, the eligibility was about 80% of the population, population were probably eligible for it. But now, as, as you've mentioned, Fran, with, with cuts, um, budget cuts, um, the government or maybe even society and culture thinking, do we need um, funding or do we need to publicly fund certain matters? But the bottom line is we're, we're down to probably about 20% of the population being eligible for public funding or for legal aid now. So um, again, um, listeners can really look into why that is and how's that happening. Obviously, we'll probably be talking about what's happened in that time. Yeah, I mean, I, I completely agree with um, everything Harine said. I think I would probably just add that we really have seen, I think the word used often is decimation of legal aid, in, particularly in, in criminal law. And I think that there is just a real lack of sort of popular support for funding for particularly criminal legal aid because people think, well, you know, why would we want to spend taxpayers' money on, on criminals? And as Haroon and I well know, most of our clients are not necessarily people who think they would ever come before the criminal justice system. And it's very easy for somebody to find themselves caught up in the situation unknowingly, um, unwittingly, um, and to not be in the position where they'd be able to fund that representation or the advice that they need. So I think that, um, you know, it, it's an easy political target to either cut funding or not to um, increase in real terms of funding that is there. Um, but it's really short sighted. Interesting. I'm really interested to hear you talk, Erin, about those pillars and equating it with the NHS, which, of course, over the last few years we've all been clapping for you know I just want to add in here that legal aid does actually mean that the lawyer gets paid so it's not the same as as pro bono legal service so um, it's just that the payment for that that representation is coming from the government so I think as Vivian you just said publicly funded um, rather than it coming um, from from the client great okay so um, I've also <laughs> mentioned quite a lot of the cases that legal aid doesn't cover um, perhaps Vivian you could tell us a little bit about the types of cases um, that, that legal aid is still in place for that haven't been cut yeah sure I mean obviously my specialism is in criminal law and there are different stages to the um, criminal justice system and stages of the investigative process so Legal aid applies slightly differently depending on which stage you're at. Um, it may or may not be something that people know, but um, advice and assistance at the police station, so someone who is arrested or invited in for an interview under caution, is um, free for everybody under legal aid. And that's a, a, a relatively straightforward system to access. But you did mention the recent um, review of criminal legal aid, and although police station representation is one of the most straightforward systems to, to access. Um, the uptake in that report was uh, apparently only 56% of people who are 
arrested or interviewed under caution at a police station request free legal advice. So interesting to consider why that may be. From my personal experience, I don't think that's because the, the remaining 44% are privately funded. I think lots of people don't request a solicitor for various reasons. Um, but after the police station, the next stage of proceedings is the magistrate's court and cases may be heard there or go on to be heard in the Crown Court. And then different eligibility criteria um, kick in at that stage. So first of all, in the magistrate's court, you have sort of two stage test. One is the interest of justice. So is the offence that someone has been accused of serious enough to to merit the involvement of a publicly funded solicitor? So certain non-imprisonable offences um, certain driving offences won't pass the interest of justice test. Um, and even if you're accused of an offence or a, an allegation where the interest of justice test is passed, there's then a means test, um, which will satisfy whether or not you are able to have your representation publicly funded. It's relatively complex to say off the cuff whether somebody would be eligible. There are situations where you can say you almost certainly will be eligible for legal aid or you almost certainly won't be eligible there's a, a relatively large gray area in between so your disposable income is essentially calculated and it's a relatively involved application process akin to a mortgage application where you have to set out exactly what your income and outgoings are um, but I mean I think Harim made the point really well that um, we're nowhere near the sort of 80% eligibility rate that we might have seen in the past. I think it's it's the, the majority of people on, on an average salary will not be eligible for legal aid on a means tested assessment for a magistrate's court case. Um, the, the final, the sort of most serious offences are dealt with in the Crown Court. Um, so those cases will almost always um, pass the interest of justice test. The Eligibility financially is slightly different in the Crown Court. You may be subject to a contribution notice if you are um, if you fall within that band, which means that whilst you wouldn't pay your solicitor, you would have to make a payment um, during the life of your Crown Court case to to fund a portion of your defence costs. Um, or if you have a certain amount of capital, that could be recouped at the end of your case if you are found guilty. So it's, it's relatively complicated um, and there are different thresholds so at different stages and there's a, a really huge admin burden on lawyers um, to progress and make applications on clients behalf and actually that time that's spent ascertaining whether someone might be eligible or making those applications is, is not remunerated itself so yeah lots of disincentives to that kind of practice really interesting um Vivian um, before I come back at you just to perhaps give us an example of a, a case that wouldn't satisfy the interests of justice um I did a bit of research before coming on and um really um if you earn anything above twelve and a half thousand pounds you're gonna be either denied legal aid or or have to make some kind of contributions I appreciate it's not quite as black and white as that it's a bit more nuanced but I was quite shocked by that yeah I mean the, the way we think about it what, one thing we would say I think both me and Vivian the reason probably why we have two criminal solicitors um today is, is because we as a profession are still um are still uh, practicing within legal aid, whereas other practitioners maybe not as much. So, for instance, you know, if you, if you spoke to a family solicitor, 
Um, maybe there are some parts, especially if you're a victim of um, domestic abuse or domestic violence, um, then you can be eligible for legal aid. However, other than that, a person coming to you for family advice, even though you may have you know, a legal aid contract, you can, as a solicitor, apply for legal aid for somebody because of the nature of their matter, they can't um, they can't get access um, to the, that public funding. And if it's still crime, um, we as um, working in the profession um, still have quite a large sort of proportion of our clients can still be eligible for the aid. But yeah, just going on what you said, Fan, yes, that, that's, and I'm sure Vivian would agree, that's effectively what we say to our clients very quickly. Are you earning more than 12,500? Um, it's interesting why is that 12,500 figure? Because um, mainly if you are on benefits, accurately positive benefits, um, that's probably what you'd be earning anyway through benefits. So it's a way of ensuring that people who are on benefits can still be eligible for legal aid. But then again, uh, with, with that other sort of, um, proviso that that's for crime, if you've got another matter to, Again, as an aside, you know, I, I may have a, a, a client, you know, typically very vulnerable from a, the lowest sector um, of society, sorry to put it that way. Whereas I can provide them with criminal advice. When when that um, client asks me or asks me whether he can get some advice or she can get some advice for a housing matter, for a family matter, for an immigration matter, an employment matter, my answer is I'm not sure. I doubt it because that's my knowledge from a criminal uh, practitioner. So it's actually quite confusing for clients as well, because actually it's divided up between the types of law um, rather than a kind of more holistic overview, because <laughs> life doesn't come in neatly packaged problems. Um, perhaps you could just each give us, our listeners, an example of a case um, or a type of offence or something that might not satisfy that interests of justice test that you mentioned. Sure. I, I had one recently, um, a client of mine who had... Uh, been out for dinner with friends, had a couple of drinks and decided that she would not be able to drive home because she had she thought she'd be over the limit. So went back to her car to charge her phone so she could call a cab uh, and was arrested for attempting to drive whilst under the influence of alcohol. Now she had a, a defence to, to that charge. It's uh, not a serious enough offence in her situation to warrant being eligible for legal aid so she paid privately for her representation um the case against her was dropped and um we then have to go through a lengthy process to try and recoup some of those costs that she's paid privately um, not all of which can be recouped um, necessarily so it, it's often very unfair to people who are um are not able to to be eligible for legal aid and in that case it was um, an interest of justice test but lots of people will also fail on the means test and will spend significantly more than legal aid rates uh, defending themselves um, which they may or may not ever get back. So interesting because certainly um, when I used to work in legal aid Vivian you know um, your, your case here has just really highlighted a, a strong feeling I had that was that if the state accuses you of a crime the state should be funding your defence to that to make sure there's equality of arms you know it's really interesting to hear an example an everyday example that people get caught up in and then be financially worse off when a case is dropped you know it has no merit it's not 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 being a, a guilty verdict we're talking from our criminal context and sometimes just like Vivian said the life of the case um, can be dictated by 
the funding and eligibility for, for legal aid or government funding. So, for instance, um, I, I was representing somebody who you know, uh, we intervened at the police station stage, advised and assisted. Um, and uh, as Vivian said earlier, that is um, there's no means tested. Uh, sorry, there's no means test to that. So you can um, whoever you are, you can use that facility of, of the free. Um, legal advice. So the, the client I represented um, was somebody who was well to do, but, but sadly had fallen on, on very hard times due to you know, various um, personal problems. So when it came to the police station, of course, um, I could help him without asking anything about his income. But as the case progressed, and it was sadly, sadly because of the of the nature of the problems that he was having, it seems as though he was getting into. Um, trouble with the police um, quite often um, and in the end I couldn't really help him with other aspects because I could help him with the police station and I think we'll come to the issue about the fixed fee um, but that covers the work that I do in the police station effectively advising him when he's been arrested when subsequently his case goes to the master's court and, and ultimately to the crown court then we get into complicated um, applications or or analysis of their um, financial means, and, and in particular to this client, because he was well to do before, he had certain assets, but even though he didn't have access to them, that the legal aid agency who determine um, whether your application for legal aid is successful or not, ultimately said, well, this is a person who we think can pay for it. In reality, he couldn't pay for it, um, even though you know, I was willing to help him. I said, well, you can't get legal aid. If you want me to continue helping you with the case, you're going to have to pay me on a private basis. And, and unfortunately, he wasn't able to do that. So difficult. Um, let's pick up on your point there about fixed fees. So um, <laughs> fixed fees is a colloquial term that, that lawyers use to describe a certain amount of representation, a package of representation being covered by a standard quantity of money rather than it being sort of, you know, pounds per hour for the work done on, on things. Um, Harry, perhaps you could help us with, um, are, there, are there conflicts that exist for lawyers who do legal aid work on, well, first of all, do lawyers get a choice about fixed fee or pounds per hour work with legal aid? Um, and secondly, are there any conflicts that arise out of, of fixed fee work? Going over the history of this, fixed fees was introduced to become right probably around sort of the, the 2000 mark, maybe um, just before I started practicing. And the idea for the government, uh, it comes from the government, the idea was that um, the government saying for, for a certain type of work, we'll pay you a certain amount. And even if your hourly rate, so again, the hourly rate is determined um, by uh, the legal aid agency, even if your work passes um, a certain threshold, we won't pay you more than that. We will just pay you um, whatever that fixed fee is. So just as a very quick example, um, you, your hourly rate is £50 per hour, uh, as an example. You do 10 hours work, but the government says we can only pay you £300, and that's your fixed fee. So therefore, you're effectively doing 200 uh, hours, sorry, £200 worth of work of not getting paid for. And the government felt that that was um, a good way of, of um, maybe limiting how much work uh, they pay for. Um, so what then happens is that 
there are certain cases that you end up having to do more work um, and then you, you as a solicitor don't get remunerated for that and and it is um it can get quite complicated so for instance for police station attendants for us as criminal lawyers there's a certain big fee for a magistrate magistrate's court case that concludes in the magistrate's court case there's a certain level of fixed fee and, and then equally in the crown court again so what we as practitioners have to do is we look at how much work we do so obviously um, in, in any practice, you uh, record how much time you spent on on a case. You then look at what the fixed fee is, and more often than not, you do make a loss. There is, of course, uh, sort of a, a catch-all of exceptional work, so where you have to justify to the legal aid agency that even though I did more hours, it, it's an exceptional situation, and and and, the, and then you get into again a quite a complicated assessment process where the legal aid agency quite often aren't willing or as willing to do maybe agree to the nature of the work whether it was exceptional or not yeah i think it's a really um peculiarly legal problem um in that we have um a, a history in the legal profession of working on an hourly rate basis which doesn't necessarily exist in in many other professions and I think that there's a really long held suspicion that um, it's in a lawyer's interest to rack up as many hours as possible to be profitable. And I think that was a lot of the motivation behind um, the changes brought in by the government to introduce fixed fees. And I think that what it um, was billed as a sort of incentive to efficiency, to discourage people from doing unnecessary work just to rack up fees and to be profitable um, but I think that there are limitations also to working on a fixed fee basis now whether or not a client is publicly funded or privately funded obviously a fixed fee offers some certainty of costs to either that person who's paying out or to the government who's paying out so you can budget for for what that would be but I think that the the incentive to efficiency can also provide disincentives to certain types of work. So if we think about um, in the situation where a client might plead guilty to an offence, there is a, generally a fixed fee in place for the advice and assistance that you would provide. And I think that's probably been on the basis that it's seen as, well, there's not much to do. Someone's pleaded guilty. All you need to do is put forward some mitigation. Um, but if you have, as I had recently, uh, a, you know, a young man, previous good characters, only 17, who had been involved in a, you know, a serious incident in which somebody was injured and he accepted his role in that. Um, and without the appropriate mitigation being put forward on his behalf, he would have been facing a potential custodial sentence, which would have all the huge negative impacts we know um, to, to happen for young people having that stage of their life disrupted. So the financial incentive would be to do as little work as possible because the fixed fee is the fixed fee and it's very low um, but obviously the, the moral and ethical and legal incentive is to get as much mitigating evidence as possible to speak to as many character witnesses um, and to put forward the best package of mitigation on behalf of that young person and I think that whilst um, from a purely economic perspective fixed fees make sense for a, a government body wishing to set and, and control a budget they don't adequately reflect the type of work and the nature of the kind of the, the human element of what we do 
um, and don't really um, invest enough trust in lawyers to to make that judgment call about doing the appropriate level of work um, for each client in their particular circumstances. Fascinating, really interesting. Um, so we've talked a lot about legal aid and the difficulties about working in legal aid. I'd love to know what you each think are the most wonderful parts of working in legal aid, what you enjoy, what makes working in legal aid um, a special thing. I'm, I'm a big advocate of access to justice. So, uh, and I'm, I'm a big fan of this principle that, you know, for instance, in, in our um, in our work, uh, if somebody's arrested and they're feeling the full force of the law, there's no questions asked. So for me, um, I, I tell um, everybody that I come across that if you know anybody who's been arrested, if you know anybody who's been invited in for an interview under caution, make sure you always know that the legal advice is free um, and you can nominate your own solicitors. So, and, uh, um, and in terms of enjoyment, um, it is it is that fact. You, know, you come into a case where somebody calls you, you know, in the middle of the night or, or whatever, um, they've been arrested at the police station, and you can come in and you can make a big, big difference. Um, and especially um, from my perspective, in, in young people's lives as well. So like Vivian said, uh, we unfortunately do deal with people who, who are quite young, but and it can be sometimes a very, very intimidating, intimidating process. And it is built that way. The police coming, knocking down your door, taking you to the um, to the police station, and then they're effectively going to interrogate you. Well, that's how it seems to you. And then for us as lawyers to come in, to advise the whole, whole process, to be able to be that person's support in, in a very, very difficult situation, you know, even uh, over the last week, um, I had uh, a young man who was too embarrassed to even tell his mo- mother that he was involved in, in something, um, you know, quite bad, and uh, the police were investigating. Um, and if it hadn't been, for instance, for myself, but it's equally any, any anybody who does the same job, if it hadn't been for somebody in that in that role to explain what situation they find them find themselves in, the fact that. You know, they do need support, and and ultimately we needed his his mother's um, home address for for him to be given bail. That role and the fact that in none of that do I ever speak to the client about, well, you're going to have to pay me this much, and if you don't pay me, you're not going to get this help. Um, to not have that discussion is for me, you know, so so um, such a great uh, part of our criminal justice system, and and also. Uh, widely, you know, this whole ethos of access to justice. I just think that that is the best example of access to justice, and and it is something, you know, I enjoy um, practicing day in day out. Yeah, I mean, I, I second all of that. I think for me, the, the two things that I would point to one is a sort of, um, you know, a personal thing. It's it's really satisfying to know that you can use your skills and knowledge to help someone with a. A concrete problem I mean often you're dealing with people who have troubled or chaotic lives and there may be lots of things that are very difficult to solve but they can come to you with one issue that you know that you have the tools to advise them about and actually sometimes that can be really comforting to know that maybe you can't fix everything in their life but this one problem you can be um, in charge of and take care of for them um, and I think from a kind of you know maybe from a selfish point of view I like feeling that I can use my skills to help people and that I find that satisfying about work um, and from a more kind of you know a broader sense 
I always wanted to be a criminal lawyer. I, I love the criminal law. I find it fascinating. And practicing in legal aid means that you see the full range of of the human condition of criminal offences. Um, no two days are the same. No two clients are the same. No two cases are the same. Um, and I think that if you practice in private um, crime um, or in a, a private field, you do tend to, to become more niche, more narrow, more specialist, which often is um, something that people strive for. But actually, I really enjoy the variety, um, the range of cases that I do, whether that's a, a fraud case, a murder case or, or a, a driving matter. They all have their own complexities um, and each client has has its own story. So. And those two things for me make it kind of a really unique role to play in someone's life. Really interesting, Vivian, because I know you've worked in private crime um, employment and, and now on legal aid, uh, back to legal aid, I should say. So it's great to hear your perspective on that. Um, thank you both, Haroon and Vivian, for um, joining us today on Reimagine Law. We always leave our listeners with a couple of practical actions that they can do at the end of each episode. And one of the things, it's a, it's a bit of a large action that I was thinking of, is if anyone's really interested in legal aid or thinks they might want to talk about it in terms of um, job interviews or, or write about it in any of their um, legal studies, I would really encourage listeners to read the report that was released in November 2021 um, called The Future of Legal Aid. And I'd also really encourage listeners to go along to a local magistrate's court and to listen for a morning at a range of different hearings, first appearances, because you'll start to hear comments come in about legal aid, like is there funding in place and things like that, and the discussions that happen between, between the lawyers and the judge um, and how legal aid can actually impact the course of proceedings and when there might need to be adjournments and things. Let's wrap up there for today. Um, don't forget to follow us on social media like the posts and we are actively looking for ideas for new episodes as we move into 2022 so please do feel free to leave us comments on linkedin or instagram 